Amen. Great singing. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as we continue our all-out war to celebrate Christ more than Christmas. So we're in the second part of four sermons on celebrating Christ more than Christmas. And I call it a war not because of what we're against. This isn't a series attacking the, the external trappings of Christmas. I think if anything proves that, it's the fact that we have artificial Christmas trees dawning our stage today. <laughs> We're not concerned about the decorations. I love lights, poinsettias, presents, gifts, traditions, people getting together. That's not the problem. The, the problem that we're trying to overcome is actually feeling, celebrating, loving, embracing Christ more than those things. More than those things. And so, question, how's that going for you so far? We're at week two of the official Christmas season. It's uh, week 17 of the unofficial Christmas season. But week two of the official Christmas season, where are you at today? I think there'd probably be three categories of people. Uh, Some of you are just in Christmas no-man's land. You don't really care. (laughs) Uh, This isn't for you. You don't give a rip that there's any trees on the stage. Uh, You think about Christmas the day before, or you only think about it if you have to. I understand that may be some. But some of you are probably in the opposite category, which actually may be you're already running full speed ahead. The calendar's booked. You've got multiple parties to go to already. You're already in debt because you've overspent your budget, and you're ready for the thing to be over, and we're really only two weeks in. Now, that could be some. And then there's that other group that's in that lull. You did all the Black Friday stuff, and then you got all your Christmas decorations out, and so it was very busy a couple weekends ago, but there's not really much happening right now, and you know it's about to get heavy. Which category are you in when it comes to, not the celebrating of Christmas, but the actual celebrating of Christ? How's your heart? We've been trying to remedy this by looking to none other than the sufficient Word of God itself. We said if we're going to actually have more affection for Christ than everything that surrounds the celebration of Christ, we're going to need to look at the Word. And so last week, we looked to God's sufficient word in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and just simply contemplated what the arrival of this Jesus meant. And Matthew is crystal clear. What we're really celebrating here is the arrival of a rescuer, a ruler, and promised blessing. A rescuer and ruler of promised blessing. That is something that fuels our joy. And now... We'll look to verses 2 through 17 to find another way that the celebration of Christ can overcome our celebration of Christmas, and it comes in a very surprising way. Hang with me, please. I'll start at verse 1 just for context, but we'll read all the way to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. 
and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Feeling joyful? That make you happy and excited about Jesus? What we just read is probably the most neglected passage in the entire Christmas story. And yet it is the one that God sovereignly chose to lay the foundation for everything we will celebrate this season. You may have not gotten the warm fuzzies from reading a passage like that, but I promise you the original readers of Matthew's gospel would have. Matthew drops a bomb in verse 1. He's saying that he's about to describe the life of Jesus as the rescuer, the ruler, the blessing. The one that was promised from time in the beginning. And now Matthew has to verify this. He has to back this up in some way. And so, how is he going to do it? How is he going to convince a bunch of, of skeptical Jews that this Jesus really is the Messiah that was promised them? Nothing would speak more clearly to a strong group, culture, and society like the Jewish people as a genealogy. This is a record. And this record reveals a couple of amazing facts about our rescuer, ruler, blessing, Jesus. And it will indeed fuel your celebration of Christ this Christmas as you hang with it. So the record reveals two facets or two angles on Jesus' rescue and rule and blessing. What are those two angles? You can go ahead and write them down. This may be able to help you. First of all, it reveals his authority. Secondly, it reveals his humanity. So the first angle is authority over us. The second is his humanity. He is with us. And so how is this helpful? Well, just follow it the way that they would have. First of all, the record reveals Christ's authority. 
He came to be over us. What you need to grasp in like your 21st century mind is how important a genealogy would have been to a 1st century Jew. See, this particular genre of literature, the genealogy, is something that was treasured by this nation in particular. If you look back into ancient culture, if you look back to contemporary writings around the time of the first century or even before, genealogies aren't that popular. In fact, as scholars have done the research, they can only find about 25 extra-biblical genealogies extant. But in the Bible itself, you have somewhere close to 17. What was their obsession with these lists of names that traced ancestors and records? It was because they were not a people grouped around an ideology, as we are as Americans. They were a group of people oriented around a biology, a family. They were related to one another, and their whole society was built upon the fact that they had blood relationships with one another. And because of that, it actually oriented everything about their society. Genealogies were popular, they were prevalent, and they were preserved. They were popular because people needed to access these records so that they could know how to divide up inheritances. They needed to know this so they could know who they could marry. Anytime somebody wanted to sell a piece of land, guess what they would have to do? They would have to find the genealogy and get permission from the highest ranking patriarch of the time to make sure that land could be given to them because God had sovereignly given it out. And so genealogies were prevalent, they were popular, and they were preserved. They were actually kept in in the temple along with all the gold and silver and everything else that the Jews had accumulated through their battles and wars. It was precious to them. And so these genealogies fall into a couple of categories. You can look in your Old Testament and see this. One is called a segmented genealogy. I'm going to geek out for a second on genealogies. Look, if I've done this much homework on a genealogy, you're going to hear it. But this is important. There's two kinds. One is segmented. A segmented genealogy is like what you would see on Ancestry.com. It's a family tree. It goes wide. It shows this guy had these kids and his brother had these kids. There's segments. There's branches. But there was a second style of genealogy. And that was the linear The linear genealogy is a straight line. It just says that so-and-so had so-and-so who had so-and-so who had so-and-so. Now, the linear genealogy was more rare. It was the segmented genealogy that they accessed for their normal, everyday documentation. This would be the stuff in the the county courthouse. This would be the thing that they would normally access. But a linear genealogy was only used for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to establish authority. To establish authority. See, the Jewish people, from their very beginning knew that there would be one among them who would rule them. That's not an American concept for sure. None of us hope that one among us will rule us, but that was their concept. Now, it would be easy to think, no, 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 they came up with this monarchy thing like later on in their history. But listen, from the very beginning, they were already expecting one. There's this implicit promise that in Genesis chapter 1 that there would be one who would come and destroy the serpent and rule, but it's not that clear. But when you get to the end of Genesis, 
something weird happens. Genesis chapter 49, you can check it out later. Jacob, whose name is also Israel, he pronounces blessings on his 12 sons, and something fascinating happens in that interchange. He's about to die. He's basically under inspiration of the Spirit, predicting the future of all of his children. And you know what he says to the fourth child, Judah? That the scepter will not depart from his feet and that he will rule over the peoples. They have no concept of a theocratic monarchy. They have no idea that they one day will have a king. And yet, as early as the founding of the twelve tribes of Israel, it was promised to Judah, not the oldest, but the fourth, that there would be a king that would come from them. And so their history would continue. And God would one day give them a king. And the first one would fail, and yet the next one would come on the scene, and his name would be David, and he would be the greatest that they had ever known. And as great as David was, and as, and as powerful as he was as a ruler, it was pronounced to David that he would not be that one who would rule over them forever, but it would be someone who would be like him, and thus the passage that we read earlier today. Second Samuel chapter 7, you remember it? What does God promise to David? He says that there will be one who will come after you whose house, whose dynasty I will establish forever. He will rule forever over your people. And now we're beginning to see why linear genealogies matter. Because if there was going to be one who was going to come and rule over everybody else, he better be verified. It can't just be any Joe Schmo that steps up to the plate and says, sure, I'll rule over everybody. It has to be someone who would be a descendant of Abraham, who would also be a descendant of David. It was someone who was promised of David's seed. And it is here that we begin to see Matthew puts together that this is the one who can actually fulfill the qualifications set in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This indeed is a king. It is official. He takes from the biblical record and he, anybody who wanted to verify what Matthew was saying in that first century culture could have easily gone to the temple and looked at these records and verified that Jesus himself does fall within the legal lineage of the line of David. This is someone that this would be an absolute essential for them to recognize Jesus as king. And so it, it reveals his authority. This is something that was absolutely imperative. That Jesus was indeed, with this, the first century audience would have thought, He is indeed the certified item. There may be more to prove here, but He at least meets the genealogical test. He is official. And when you know that something's official, it changes the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you act about it. As a child, I had a brief little stint in which uh, I collected baseball cards. It was, uh, I, I was looking for a hobby, really. I tried collecting stamps for a little while, and that was really boring. Baseball cards, I would at least follow. And I was always so excited to get that new, like, 25-cent thing of baseball cards with a piece of gum. It would come with a piece of gum. And so I would rip the thing open, and I remember one day, to my great surprise, I would normally get bench players. I got an autographed copy of a Cal Ripken Jr. baseball card. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, Cal Ripken Jr. at that time was like the guy that everybody wanted to get a hold of, at least in card form. 
He was nicknamed the Iron Man. He, he had broken all kinds of records. I mean, eventually, he would play like 21 seasons without like ever missing a game. He was an MVP, an, an all-star. I mean, he, he was like the guy. And I had his card with an autograph on. But I was a little skeptical. Because I'm thinking, how did Cal Ripken get this thing in a sealed package? <laughs> you know, like, in my little eight-year-old mind, I'm really excited about an autograph card, but I'm not that certain about an autograph card. And so, I asked my mother to take me to the local novelty store, and we go and see the collection of real, authentic, verifiable, signed baseball cards. And guess what? They looked a lot different than mine. One, they were behind a glass under lock and key. Secondly, they had a plastic casing around them. Third, they had a holographic sticker on top of that saying that this person had actually signed this card. (laughs) What I had was a print-on of a Cal Ripken. Imagine the confidence that I would have had in, in seeing and actually getting a hold of a certified, like, actually signed card of Cal. I didn't have it. What we have here in this is certified, authentic, like it, it bears the marks of like something real. It's not something skeptical. It's not something shady. Matthew is giving them something that they could go and look at. It, it's got the plastic encasing. It's got the holographic sticker. Like he wants them to walk away knowing that this isn't just fictional thinking. You could check it out. This guy actually falls into the line of David. He is certified. He is official. This is a real authority, a real king. And that, friends, should change the way that we speak of him, the way that we present him, the way that we talk of him to others. Knowing that Jesus isn't just a figment of our imaginations, but that He is a real, verifiable King within history will change you. It changes the way you speak. I mean, think about this Christmas season in which it seems that there is a conspiracy to celebrate the holiday without mentioning Jesus. It was funny the other day that my kids were watching the Frozen Christmas special which is about 28 minutes long. And so I told my daughter, I said, I want you, I'm not going to watch this thing with you because I'm not that interested. But I want you to actually count for me how many times they say the word Christmas in the Christmas special. Out of a 28-minute program, the word Christmas was only mentioned twice as an adjective for a tree. I mean, like, do you not see it? Even at the grocery store right beside my house, it seems like they're celebrating some kind of holiday. There's a big snowflake out there. There's menorahs on all the lights. There's ribbons everywhere. But I have no idea what holiday it is. I just have to kind of guess. And so people will tell you, happy holidays or season's greetings. And what is that? Because they don't want to actually bring out what this holiday is really about. Friends, speak boldly. There's a real king here. Just say it. Merry Christmas. (laughs) A girl told us that last night. I was like, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you know what holiday it is. Look, this is what we're celebrating. This is not just wishful thinking on our part. My greatest problem, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin all your Christmas movies from childhood. My greatest problem with the Polar Express, if you've ever seen it, is the generic message to believe. To believe in what? Believe in a king who actually existed, Jesus. 
the normal theme of the Christmas movies that our children will watch is believe in Santa Claus. And what the text is saying is this, you can believe this is a real, authenticated King Jesus. Say His name. He actually existed. It would change the way that we speak not only at the holiday, but it would change the way we speak any day. Friends, how often do you talk of Jesus as if he's real? Great exercise. Conversation starter for you. Just, you want to have a meaningful conversation with someone beyond the weather. Don't worry, you can ask about the weather. But you've got to get past that. Simple way to get to know somebody. Say this. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. Now, that's an opportunity for someone, hopefully, within two minutes or less, to kind of give you a brief overview of their background. And typically, the way that it works is after you ask them that, they'll ask you, so tell me about yourself. When you tell people about yourself, when you tell people your story, do you mention Jesus? Is he an actual part of your life? I mean, is is there a time in which it was just normal conversation for you to be able to say, well, I, I grew up here, and then I went to school here, and it was at this point that I met Jesus, and He actually had an influence on my life, and now I moved here because I thought I could best represent Him. I mean, when you tell the story, is it just the trivial details, the kind of things that you could read on a Facebook profile, or is it actually a story about a relationship with a real, living, authentic ruler? When we see that our Lord is certifiable, He is official, He will become an everyday part of our language. I won't embarrass the individual involved, but we do have a particular lady in our congregation who makes it a practice to when she meets people, to hand them a card, and on it, it has this little byline, this is like the card, has her name, and it says, Servant of the King. Servant of the King. And I... You know, you know where that conversation goes. Servant of the king, you work for a king? What do you mean you work for a king? And she just speaks as if Jesus is real. She speaks as if she actually serves Jesus with her life. I know pastors who do that, who introduce themselves on plane rides as an ambassador of a foreign emissary. I think it's a little cheesy. <laughs> just a little. I don't do that. But I like the idea of speaking as if the fact, like he is real. Yes, I do represent a foreign ruler, someone who actually exists. And so what does this genealogy teach us? What we have, the, the Savior that we worship, isn't wishful thinking, but it's actually someone who existed in time and history. There's no way that Matthew would have ever put pen to paper with these names and anybody would have received it if they could have rejected or questioned the genealogy. And for whatever skeptics would say about the differences between Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, what they're not focusing on is the emphasis of the genealogy. Matthew focuses on the legal line, Luke focuses on the biological line, and naturally they come into a culmination in Jesus Christ Himself. It's amazing, I read two different stories this week, and I won't share them with you, of Jewish people who were converted investigating the genealogical claims of Jesus Christ. It is fact. It is history. It is record. It will affect the way we speak. He is a real 
king. He is the certified item. That's what the record reveals. We have an authoritative king. He rules over us. But there's a second thing that this record reveals to us. It isn't just the authority, the actual authority of Christ, but the record reveals his humanity. He is not just over us, friends. He is with us. He is with us. This is where things get interesting. Look at the text again. Notice in verse 1 how Matthew opens it up. He says, the book of the the genealogy of Jesus, and now notice Christ first, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, you're going to see these three paragraphs kind of divided up in your Bible there. What's the first paragraph about? Abraham. He's the prominent figure in that genealogical line. Then you look down to the beginning of verse 7, or the end of verse 6. David now takes over the record. And then you get to verses 12 through 16, and it culminates in Christ. So, Matthew is doing some very intentional authoring here. He's saying, I want to prove to you that this is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so I'm going to, in reverse order, show how this guy is connected to Abraham, and then David, and then culminating in the Christ. And then something else weird takes place in this genealogy. Because if you do try to follow this through like Second Chronicles and some of the other genealogies of the Old Testament, you'll notice that this one has been selectively abridged. It's abridged. It's, it's kind of fancy that it works out to be three series of 14. Uh, just look in verse 17. There's that kind of enigmatic explanation of what he's doing. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew is not making any apologies here that he is giving you an abridged genealogy. He wants it to be in three sets of a 14 so that people could easily, listen to this, memorize it. Of all the things to memorize in the Bible, who would actually want to memorize the genealogy? Listen, in a Jewish society that was primarily an oral culture, things memorized were made official. They were constantly trying to memorize things important to them. And so Matthew edits this genealogy in a way that anyone could have memorized it that was committed to understanding Jesus' lineage. But here's where things get really interesting. If Matthew has the authority to do some selective editing, now by editing I just mean taking some names out, so it'll say so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, it might actually be their grandson or their great-grandson. They're still in the same line. There's no switching names out, it's just skipping over some line. If Matthew has the capacity to skip over certain names, if he's trying to put them in three sets of 14 to make it easy for everyone to memorize, here's like question number one on my mind. Why does he include some names on this list and not others? You ready? Just consider this. There's four women mentioned on this list. But none of them are the great matriarchs of the Hebrew faith. If, you were, if there were like a, a Jewish women's Mount Rushmore, the faces on there would be Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. And yet the names here are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, 
And then it doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name. It says the wife of Uriah. What's Matthew up to? If he can do selective editing, why in the world would he include these women, two of whom are clearly Gentiles, all four maybe? Or even think of the first one. I mean, like, the lesson that we often skip in Sunday school is the one on Rahab. Or excuse me, Tamar. Nope. (laughs) Back it up one more time. Yes, Tamar. Genesis chapter 38 and 39. Do you remember the story? I've got to tell you the quick version, but if you've never heard it, it's close to disgusting. Because what we have is a particular woman who was married to Judah, the guy I mentioned to you earlier, married to Judah's son. He dies. She wants a child to continue his line. And so the dad promises the younger brother. But guess what? The dad lies. He doesn't give her the younger brother. She's waiting to get remarried again so that she can have a family. And then she's so frustrated, she takes matters into her own hands and says, I will have a son. And so how does she remedy this problem? She dresses herself up as a prostitute and then intentionally plants herself somewhere that Judah, of all people, is going to show up, entices him. He commits in this adulterous act with her and impregnates his own daughter-in-law, and this becomes Perez and Zerah, who are mentioned here, the twins. There's your Mount Rushmore. How do you like that? Why would Matthew, of all people, highlight, of all women, someone like Tamar? Forget Tamar for a second. Why would he highlight Judah? Judah's just as guilty as she is. I mean, you you go down, let's look at the next face on the monument, and you, you see someone like Ruth. Where's Ruth? Ruth was not a natural-born Jew. Ruth was a Moabite. Someone who was the product of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Someone who was forbidden of entering the tabernacle up to ten generations. I mean, that Ruth. The one who like, grew up worshiping Moloch. I mean, the, the one who like, grew up in a culture where they would actually sacrifice babies as a form of worship. And then somehow she gets included in the genealogical line. And she gets poster time. And then it continues. You not only have Tamar, you not only have Ruth, but then it goes right on down, and we mentioned Rahab. You remember what Rahab was? She was a professional prostitute. Indeed, she gave shelter to the two Hebrew spies, and God preserved her line. But it's almost as like Matthew is intentional. I mean, if you've got Sarah and Rebecca and all those to choose from, it's like he's almost highlighting like the ones that seem like the outsiders. I mean, these are Gentiles, they are part immoral, and that's just the women. I mean, he then includes, oh, by the way, Bathsheba, and mentions her as the husband of Uriah, implying that, the Hittite, implying that she may not be a Jew. She enters into an adulterous relationship. It also brings about, or recalls to mind, David's own failure. And then we have these bad kings. Mentioned in the record are Ahaz, Manasseh, and Ammon. And if you read the book of First Samuel and Second, I mean Second Samuel and Second Kings and First Kings, these all get labeled bad. Why didn't Matthew then just edit the genealogy in such a way that he skipped over the bad ones and only focused on the good ones? You want to know why? You ready for this? It's because 
He wanted his readers to know that even though this Jesus would be royalty and authority, he was fully identifying with all of humanity. Not just the good ones, not just the perfect ones, not just the clean ones, not the ones that had all their ducks in a row, not the ones who fully and perfectly lived everything out that was expected of them in God's law. He was identifying with all of humanity, not just part of it. And for is this good news for some of us who sometimes feel like an outsider? It has been the fad of late, maybe the last couple years, for people to pay about 120 bucks to get one of these DNA tests done at Christmas. You may even get one this year. People are now all of a sudden interested in their origins, where they came from. Before this was so easily accessible, only costing about $120 a test, to do a full-blown genealogical record on oneself was costing somewhere around $500. I read a story of a particular gentleman who paid half a thousand dollars to get his genealogical record done, and then once he found out where he came from, he was willing to pay $2,500 for them to cover it up. (laughs) You all can identify? Do you have any uh, skeletons in your familial closet? Anybody that you know of in your own line that you would think... I don't want anybody to know about this. I have it, I'm not, and now is not the place to share it. But I've heard things. I know things that I don't want to know. Not just about my own life, but about those who were over me. And, and, and if I had my choice, like if I had my, did you choose to enter into a mess like that? Like, if you're, if you're the Son of God and you're picking the line to which you belong, like, which one do you pick? Jesus picked that line. Because He wanted His people to understand that He was coming to identify with a sinful humanity. But Matthew will not make Jesus complicit in this ongoing sin because he's very careful to show us that even though legally Jesus belonged to such a sinful line, he was not fathered by a sinful individual. Look at verse 16. We've got this pattern of some male fathering someone else And notice what happens here. He said it basically 41 times, and you get to time 42, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. And now it switches. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Do you see how the pattern changes? So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And And then all of a sudden it says, so-and-so begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, passive verb as opposed to an active verb, who is called Christ. What is Matthew doing here? He's saying that Jesus fully identified with the sinful line, but he was not fully a part of. 
He did not inherit a sinful nature. Let's be crystal clear about that. He was fathered by God. Even though he fully entered into the human experience, he was not himself born in sin. And this is huge. And this is deep. And a thorough treatment of it would exceed our time together today. But friends, when I say, I just don't want you to misunderstand me. When I say Jesus fully identified with humanity, he did indeed to remedy sin. But he himself was no sinner. So what's the big deal, Justin? Why, why is it, <laughs> I mean, who cares that... Jesus identified as a human. He wasn't just an authority, but he also took on humanity. Because the way that like this whole problem of like the world has kind of like worked is through like a curse that has been passed on to us humanly speaking. And we needed someone to remedy that. And Jesus entered into that, entered into this mess to remedy it, to rescue us from it. There's two ways in which the humanity of Christ are of great benefit to you this Christmas season. The first is it made possible His rescue for sin. He rescued you from your sin. And particularly, its penalty. What was the penalty of sin according to Genesis chapter 3? The penalty of sin was death. And what did Jesus do? He entered into humanity and He actually died, satisfying God's wrath for it. And then rising again to show that all who believe in Him could experience that same life. The penalty of sin has been remedied in Christ. He came and identified with sinful humanity and He fixed it. That's the thing. He fixed it. So He fixed it. He fixed sin's penalty for us. And if we're believing in Him, and if you trust in Him alone, you can also have this penalty forgiven, released. And that's good news. But hear me, friends, he didn't just come to remedy remedy the penalty of sin. He came to remedy the power of sin. See, sin has been passed on to you just like a bad genetic disease. Not only its penalty, but its power. That tendency that you have to disobey, to shake your fist at God, to do things your own way, to be mean to other people, like that is not something that you learned. It is something that you are. Jesus remedies that. He remedies that by coming into the situation and like straightening it out. He came as fully human to show us that we too could live righteously if we take advantage of the same means that He has. Now don't get me wrong. Liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity will tell you that Jesus has come to teach you how to be a good person. And this is what they'll say. Just act like Jesus. Just do the stuff that Jesus did. That's the great problem with that book written in the early 19th, I mean 20th century uh, in his steps. It gives you the idea that if you just copy the actions that Jesus did, like you're going to be right, you're going to be corrected, everything's going to be good. But listen, friends, it's not just by doing the things that Jesus did, it's doing it in the way that he did it. How did Jesus live a sinful, I mean a sinless, perfect life? It was through the power of the Holy Spirit. He was truly human. He truly felt temptation. And he relied on the Spirit to help him overcome that. And friends, that is good news for you. That is good news for you. Jesus overcomes the, has overcome the sin that you and I both struggled with. Look with me quickly in your Bibles at Hebrews chapter 2. And you'll find an amazing facet of truth about the humanity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2. And friends, I pray that this will encourage you. 
Notice this in verse 10. He says, For it was fitting that He, talking about Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of this salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. How do you become holy? It's all through one source. And that is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus. He calls us brothers. He identifies with us. And so it gives the Bible verses to back that up. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your, the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I have given the children of God, I, the children of God has given me. And now notice this, verse 14. As a brother, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, they're truly human, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, humanity, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, are you ever tempted? Christ knows your temptation. That almost sounds blasphemous to some of you. To think that Jesus Christ was actually tempted. If you have a problem with that, you have a problem with one of the most fundamental doctrinal understandings of Jesus and the history of the church. He is not just divine. He is also human. And the fact that He is human is good news because it shows that we too can have His righteousness. Not just positionally, but practically. We can live victorious Christian lives. Christ has made it possible. Friends, when you struggle with sin, here's the temptation. Let's say that you fall. You fall to something that you hate. Something that you're consistently falling to. It would be easy for you to think, Christ doesn't understand. He doesn't know. He doesn't get how I am. And so we start to gradually withdraw. This whole Christianity thing seems so fake. It seems like a farce. It can't deal with the realities of life because you know what it is to be a fallen human being. But you're not thinking of Jesus as one who has been tempted like as you were. See, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. You know what sympathy means? It means I've been there. I felt that, right? He is a sympathetic high priest. He is one that knows your struggle. And when you fall in sin, listen to this. It is not the wrath of God that is being poured out on you. He is not angry with you. That has already been absorbed in his death. It is primarily the pity of in the sun. He is broken. Like, like someone who contracts a horrible disease. He, he looks at you and he sees the brokenness and, and he sees the way that you struggle with that sin and he wants to move in. He wants you to move close and identify with him and come to him as a high priest and to confess those things and to receive strength from him so that you can have victory over it. And you should run to Jesus when you sin, not away from him. Because He is indeed a sympathetic high priest. He is fully identified with you as a human being. Why do you think we're singing about the incarnation of Christ at Christmas? He has entered into this humanity to truly 
fix it, to remedy it. May I make one more comment? It's not just in our struggles with sin, but it's also in our struggles of living in a fallen, broken human body. Jesus identified with all of our weaknesses. He has felt pain and he has felt physical limitation. For those of you who are older, and healing doesn't come as quickly as it used to, maybe you've reached the new normal, and it doesn't seem like this body is going to be what it was 40 years ago, Jesus identifies. He knows what it's like to experience human limitation. And guess what, friends? He will one day liberate you from those frustrations that you feel in this human body. Just as he conquered death and rose again, so also he will conquer your broken body and one day give you a new one. That is the fundamental hope in Christ a resurrected body, to live with him forever. So what does a genealogy have to do with joy? It shows us who our rescuer, our ruler, our blessing really is. It authenticates him as our authority. He is a real and actual authority. He truly exists. And it authenticates him and his humanity. He actually identifies with us. He is over us, and He is at the same time with us. And that is something worth celebrating. Let's pray. Father, we have looked at what is indeed one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament for us. It seems like there's so much distance between or where we are today and the things that we wrestle with and what Matthew was concerned about to that first century world. And yet, upon further reflection, Lord, we see that Your authority being real, (laughs) official, and credible is something that matters to us. We should speak of You. I pray for Your help in that. Or that this congregation would boldly proclaim and speak Christ. And Father, we see the humanity of Your Son in this as well. His willingness to identify with the sinful, with the outsider, and to remedy it. Not just its penalty, but its power. Or show us or the importance, convince us the importance of Christ as our human Savior. Or this time of year, Lord, give us something new to celebrate Lord, within You and, and what You've done. Or that You are our sympathetic High Priest. Lord, You are with us in our weaknesses. And so for all who are struggling with sin, I pray that they would find hope for victory. In the risen Christ, our Lord Jesus. And finally, Lord, I pray for those who have yet to bow the knee to this King, who have not yet submitted to His rule. I pray that they would trust in Him or make the Word come alive in them so that they would be convinced of their sin, their need for You, and trust in You and You alone. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.